0: The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts.
1: I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we discuss Ukraine's Independence Day and analyse six months of the conflict. We ask how Ukrainians are marking the bloody anniversary on the ground. And we hear from our correspondent, Will Brown, on Russian influence in Africa.
2: This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Nobody's gonna break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians.
1: Every weekday afternoon we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our team's reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Wednesday, the 24th of August, day 182. And today I'm joined by senior foreign correspondent Roland Oliphant, our Africa correspondent Will Brown, and our guest, journalist and translator from Kiev, Alexandra Povaroznik. I started off by asking Alexandra and Roland for the latest updates from Ukraine on this, their Independence Day.
3: Uh, hi, hi, thanks ha- for having me on the podcast. Um, well, I'd say that the atmosphere is, you know, at once quite tense because we have been warned that Russia might try and escalate the you know the situation even further um, and yet I feel like a lot of people think that you know um, cowering in fear is well pretty much not no way to live um, especially at a time like this so they're sort of defiantly but Also carefully trying to celebrate, you know, in their own homes and trying to be safe. And obviously, you know, I feel like today's the day when even the people who are used to, you know, ignoring the air raid sirens, I think even those people are taking them a little more seriously today. So um, not a lot of, you know, um, public celebrations going on, but in the privacy of their own homes, uh, I think a lot of people are celebrating
1: May I ask, are you uh, and your friends and family are you doing anything special today?
3: Uh, well, we're uh, we're lucky enough to be in the suburbs, so we're a little bit more relaxed, I think. Um, although the suburbs in question, um, it's Hostomel, uh, sadly a town uh, which is now famous for well quite tragic reasons. Um, but yeah, I think um, because we're outside of you know um, Kiev downtown. We, we do feel a little bit safer, so we're going to be doing a barbecue and um, we've invited friends over. and I think um, this is one of those days where everyone is trying to gather uh, outside of the city, maybe you know visit friends who are out of town, maybe just go to the suburbs because um, it's easier to celebrate there, you know without feeling like you're putting yourself in extra danger.
1: Well, thank you very much for that, uh, for giving us a sense of how people in Kiev are, are thinking and, and marking Independence Day. Alexandra. we'll come back to you later because, of, of course, as well as being Independence Day for Ukraine today, it's also the sixth month anniversary of uh, the invasion. Um, Roland Oliphant, can I come to you? Um, outside of Kiev, outside of the Independence Day um, uh, celebrations, what else is happening in Ukraine? What should our listeners know?
2: Um, well, to be honest, the, the Independence Day... Um, event is is the key thing today really it, it today also marks six months since the start of the war um and there's been an awful lot of worry about um the russians making a point on this day a, a doubly symbolic day um government workers in kiev were told not to come to work this week um to work from home the united states told any um any citizens who are still inside ukraine to uh to get out or or, or, or keep their heads down over this week because there is an anticipation of the Russians making massive missile strikes across the country. That hasn't yet um, occurred as far as we can tell. Um, Kharkiv over in the east is under a 36-hour curfew in expectation of this. Um, uh, the uh, the governor over there has um, put out on Telegram reports of um, a couple of missile strikes in, um, in villages around there. But we, I don't think we've yet seen this... Feared uh, nationwide barrage um, that we were warned about, but but everyone's certainly keeping keeping an eye on that. Um, President Zelensky made um, you know one of his characteristically charismatic speeches um, this morning to mark this. I think it's worth it's worth just picking out a couple of quotes here, partly because it he does have this way of describing how the nation feels. Um, Uh, speaking on the six month anniversary of the war a new nation appeared on the world on February 24th at four in the morning it was not born but reborn a nation that did not cry scream or take fright one that did not flee Uh, one that did not uh, give up and did not forget Um, and we'll talk about this later in the in the podcast but um, there really is a sense in Ukraine about there was a before and an after and and the country changed um, on February 24th Um, the other thing he he restates war aims here Um, We will not sit down at the negotiating table out of fear with a gun pointed at our heads. For us, the most terrible iron is not missiles, aircraft and tanks, but shackles, not trenches, but fetters. Donbass is Ukraine, and we will return it, whatever the path may be. Crimea is Ukraine, and we will return it, whatever the path may be. Very clear, um, you know, putting to bed this this previous idea that we'll fight until um, the status quo ante of February 24th. He wants the land that was taken in 2014 back as well. Um, Elsewhere... Uh, On the battlefield, uh, British Ministry of Defence um, saying that uh, Russia's Donbass offensive is making minimal progress. Uh, Russian forces are expecting a major counterattack. Operationally, Russia is suffering from shortages of munitions, vehicles and personnel. Morale is poor in parts of its military. Army significantly degraded, um, etc. Now, the British Ministry of Defence loves putting out this kind of thing. um, And I wouldn't expect them to publish anything uh, that didn't say that Russia is having a bad time of it. However... Um, Sergei Shoigu, the Russian defense minister, has himself said at a meeting of the Shanghai uh, Cooperation Organization um, that the offensive has slowed down. He puts that down to a concern uh, for civilians trying to um, avoid civilian casualties. A um, couple of other things. Over in Russia itself, uh, Russian authorities have detained Yevgeny Roisman. Now, Yevgeny Roisman is a famously foul-mouthed um, Uh, I I suppose the kids would say based, um, politician. Um, He is probably, he's a former mayor of Yekaterinburg, uh, former Duma deputy, um, pretty popular in his home city. He was the last prominent uh, opposition leader of any standing, still at liberty in Ukraine. Alexander Valle is in jail. Um, Many other people are in jail. He was still at liberty until today. Um, There's video of him being arrested, police raiding his home. Um, he's been able to tell reporters who showed up there that he's been arrested for discrediting the army. Um, This is his quote. We we know everything about our country, nothing new. The case was opened for one phrase, invasion of Ukraine. I said it everywhere and I will say it now. Um, So basically he's been arrested um, for calling the war a war and he has been fined for this before. Um, Russia has banned that word. Um, And it's kind of remarkable that he has been at liberty for so long. I just want to read something he said on on the first day of the war six months ago. Um, I think on the part of the authorities, this is a betrayal of of its people, a tragedy. A war has begun. Uh, No one expected it. No one believed it, that it could happen. However, in the Third Reich, many people also didn't believe it. So he's openly compared the current Russian authorities to... um, Tenantz is basically a very staunch critic of the Kremlin, now, like all the others, um, in prison. And the last thing I think we should should note, um, Joe Barnes, our Brussels correspondent, has a piece on the front of the paper. um, British diplomats have been uh, going around Europe um, warning their European colleagues not to buckle this winter. Um, There's a fear in Britain that European allies are... Um, may waver support for Ukraine may crack in the face of this enormous inflation and energy crisis we're going to face um, uh, in the coming months. Um, and that is uh, that's all from me for now.
1: Well, thank you uh, very much for that, Roland. Um, we will speak, of course, about uh, how the country has changed, and I'll get Roland and Alexandra to come in on that later. But first, I'd like to invite, uh, I think for the first time on this podcast, Will Brown, The Telegraph's Africa correspondent. Will, you're, you're back in the UK for a bit, so you're in the studio with, with Roland. Um, you wanted to talk about Russian... Actions across Africa over the past few years and so could you give us a sense of the concerns of uh, the Russian state on the continent and and what do they actually do? How do they try and influence
4: African countries? Uh, Great. Well, thank you very much for having me on. It's uh, very exciting to be here. Um, Well, first of all, I think this is quite a a fascinating and and underreported topic. So if I just if I may, I start with a bit of background. Um, There's a lot of sympathy for for Russia on the continent for various reasons. Um, And I think first of all, you've got to understand that the West has quite a bad reputation in Africa. Uh, Of course, European powers carved up the continent in the 19th century, looted a lot of their art, backed apartheid regimes in southern Africa for decades, supported coups against democratic leaders and backed horrific strongmen. Now, rightly or or wrongly, there's a widespread perception in Africa. The West is constantly moralizing about democracy and liberal rights to African governments while chucking a bit of aid money their way. But that fundamentally, they're not really taking, uh, taking African governments that seriously and expecting them... To just uh, go along with everything the West says, like grateful partners. On the other hand, you've you've got Russia, which never had uh, an empire in Africa, and the Soviet Union supported a lot of anti-colonial, anti-apartheid struggles across the continent. Um, uh, of course, like a lot of older states, statesmen, still in parts of Africa, still speak Russian from their time uh, studying in Moscow. Um, so, so that's the background, and 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 so let's go go to the present day. I, I think in about in around twenty fifteen. Putin started uh, looking around the world and, and asking where Russia could get some influence on the cheap and, and disrupt Western interests. And he settled on, on on this kind of vast swath of Africa, stretching from the Francophone Sahel region in West Africa all the way to the Central Afro- African Republic and on to Sudan in the East Coast uh, on the East Coast. And, and and these are all almost all very fragile states which struggle to exert force outside their capital cities. Now. Russia started piling in mercenaries from the Wagner Group into the Central African Republic several years ago, even providing the president with security detail, protecting him against uh, would-be putschists within his own ranks. This effectively allowed them to capture the state and won them a free pass to, to basically make cash however they wanted. Um, since then, you've had airstrips uh, popping up all around CAR, Russian airstrips. Uh, the Russians can basically fly troops in and out of the region as they please, using the country as a strategic base. Um, the Operation basically pays for itself. The the mercenaries make serious money for, from one major industrial mine in the country. But sources tell me that they're also sending small helicopters equipped with machine guns into artisanal gold mines in the bush to loot them for everything they're worth. And this kind of helps kind of supplement the, the 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 normal kind of Wagner mercenary salary. Um, they're also in Sudan and Darfur, linked to warlords there, mining a huge amount of gold and possibly uranium in shadowy operations that we really don't mu- know that we really don't know much about. Um, <laughs> Um, recently, they moved into Mali in West Africa, and this is quite an underreported, but hugely significant coup for the Russians. Um, basically, they, they've helped to turf out the key Western power in the region, France, out of Mali after a decade of, of, of Paris fighting this uh, this losing war in the desert against jihadist groups. Um, and I think one thing to really stress here is one of the major benefits for these various African strongmen or military junta's of using these Russian guns for hire is, is that you don't really need to, you don't really get any liberal rights baggage with them. Uh, You can give uh, Wagner a mining contract or something and suddenly you you have a decent fighting force who don't mind getting their hands very bloody with torture or or, or mass executions. Uh, Of course, the, the sympathy... Uh, with, with with Russia or the refusal to stand out against Russia in, in Africa isn't all to do with Wagner uh, a, a lot of countries are run by more liberal minded technocratic governments uh, who, who generally do not want to get involved in the Ukrainian conflict because they feel that they've got enough problems at home and whatever happens they're going to end up being inadvertent victims of this conflict through the massive price rises of foods foodstuffs and fuel which um, in parts of Africa have gone up twice or even three times yeah so just on that, can,
1: we, can I ask, what does Russia get from this? Um, you they, they said they, they got involved. Putin decided to try and influence what was going on from around 2015 and, and before. But what, what's in it for Russia in, in, in all this?
4: Well, I mean, I, I, there's lots of things for in Russia. I mean, one, it's you know they're, they're winning things by being able to disrupt the West uh, by disrupting Western interests. I think for, for Putin, that's a victory in itself. But also, you've got to remember that that, that Africa is the largest voting bloc in the UN General Assembly. Um, you know, every, everyone from, from Guinea-Bissau to Equatorial Guinea has a vote. Now, now Russia wants those votes to kind of back its um, back its uh, um, uh, back its agenda in the UN General Assembly. Now, there's also other things. It's also to do with um, to do with raw materials. Now, before Russia invaded Ukraine, it amassed a vast kind of war chest of gold. Now, a lot of this gold, um, we think, is from African uh, African mines, mines in the Sudan, mines in, in Central African Republic, mines in Mali. Um, so, they, 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 you know, it's it's about amassing those raw materials they me- they need to make the, the to make the Russian war machine keep working.
1: Can we talk a little bit about disinformation? How does that play out in Africa? What does Russia want people there to think and why?
4: So, so, yeah, the, the Wagner Group isn't all about, you know, guns for hire. They they offer a full range of services, including electioneering and disinformation campaigns. Um, and then there's been reports of governments right across Africa, southern, eastern, west and central, using these services. Um, I think a lot of the disinformation services uh, I've seen during the last five years working uh, on the issue has have been kind of centred around uh, Francophone Africa, which I think Putin sees as a bit of a soft target. Uh, Russian bot accounts, you know, spread disinformation about France which is the, the the traditional regional hegemon in the region they, they're spreading disinformation about what their real mission in the Sahel is uh, are they really there to fight jihadists or are they really there to to keep Africa weak and ripe for the exploitation of you know secret uh, reserves of minerals in the Sahara and, and stuff like this and, and this 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 kind of disinformation campaign um it seems to be really working you know I remember uh, as early as 2019 2020 we started seeing Russian flags popping up at anti-french anti-government protests. Tests in places like Mali or Burkina Faso. That's that's absolutely
1: fascinating. Thank you so much, Will. Can I can I ask? Can we draw some of these threads together and and say how is this connected to and why is it relevant to the invasion of Ukraine? Well,
4: well, well, well as I, as I mentioned, I mean it's really about. Um, so first of all, we can look at it in terms of raw materials. So, 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 uh, you know, as I said, Russia has amassed this vast war chest uh, of gold, mainly from kind of these weird, uh, kind of shadowy nexuses of of different gold miners and warlords in Africa. Now, that's that's one point. Second point, um, well, I don't know. At the beginning of the conflict, we remember that President Zelensky, uh, there were assassination attempt. Uh, uh, there was uh, bands of Wagner mercenaries who reportedly uh, some of them came from Central African Republic or Libya, who went to um, who, who went to Ukraine. Deployed to Ukraine to try and assassinate Zelensky. So, so th- th- there's links like this. But there's also th- there's links around kind of uh, uh, earlier on in the conflict, there was a major vote um, at the UN General Assembly to condemn Russia and, 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 and to kind of tell Russia to w- withdraw unilaterally from Ukraine. Um, now, quite a few African countries uh, either boycotted that vote or, 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 obs- or, or officially abstained, uh, it's called, because they didn't want to kind of come out on either side.
1: Thank you so much for all of this, Will. There's so much to get into here. Um, Roland and Alexandra, do you have
2: any questions for Will? Um, Questions? Um, Thank you, Will. Um, We're sharing a studio, by the way, so I apologise if you could um, hear me doodling um, as he was speaking. Um, I think I just wanted to pick up on what he said about, you know, all these African countries not wanting to to come off the fence, um, if you say. I mean, part of it, I think, is definitely, as he said, um, kind of historic sympathy um, right. I mean, I I've, I've haven't worked in Africa as much as will, but you know, colleagues I have worked with in in Southern Africa have been sending me articles um, in newspapers, and I read them, and it's just dripping with this sense that you know, Moscow was the liberating force who helped us out back then. Um, so I think you know that that relationship is still there. That was neglected for very many years by the Russians. Um, Russia is back in Africa and trying to rebuild from 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 quite a low base. All of those connections kind of decayed. Over the past um, couple of decades, but they are putting in some effort. But there's also a practical there's a practical point here. So Ukraine and Russia together provide about uh, is it half of the wheat um, used by the World Food Program? Um, almost all of that wheat that we were talking about coming out of you know trying to get wheat out of Odessa that was all going to Africa. Um, it was going to East Africa. It was going to um, to Egypt, um, places like that, um, and. I mean, Vladimir Putin sent, um, uh, sorry, sent, sent sent a number of people um, touring African capitals just, just a few weeks ago, um, Zimbabwe, Mozambique, South Africa, um, saying, look, we're going to make sure you get the wheat that we've promised. Um, so, yes, very much, um, a, you know, an active diplomatic game for the sympathies um, of, of those countries.
1: Thank you very much, uh, Roland. Alexandra, just wondering, is there anything from you on this?
3: Yeah, sure. Thanks for the fascinating insight. Um, I just wanted to ask in your opinion. um, I've noticed, uh, you know, there's a lot of outlets and just individuals, um, predominantly English-speaking ones, who are trying to tackle the sort of Russian disinformation online. But um, as I think uh, you said, a lot of um, Russian disinformation is specifically targeting Africa and various African countries. Do you think um, Western media or or just, you know, just people online, um, for lack of a better term, are doing enough to sort of, you know, debunk all of this propaganda? Or do you think it's something that we're, you know, we're missing and overlooking, and which could have, you know, bad consequences, potentially?
4: So, I, I, first of all, I just want to say uh, fantastic points from both of you, and, and I think your point just now is, is is absolutely key. I think we are missing this. You know, a lot of this dif- disinformation is not really targeted at, 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 at um, you know at people in the West. A lot of it is focused in on, on people in developing countries in Africa, and I think I, I think if you look to countries like Mali, like Burkina Faso, even Kenya, where I'm, I'm currently based. Um, you know, this stuff, this stuff is there, and this stuff is working. And I don't think uh, uh, Western kind of uh, Western countries, Western governments, have really woken up to to, to just how far and uh, this stuff is going. Yeah.
1: Well, thank you very much, Will. Uh, anything more from Roland and Alexandra on this?
4: I, I just wanted
2: to ask Will. I mean, is is there a sense in which African publics, for whatever reason, are more receptive to this than others?
4: Well, that's, it's a difficult question to to answer. I think that I think that Russia is very carefully and very cleverly tapping in to a fiercely patriotic um, a fiercely patriotic uh, discourse, um, one which kind of holds the the French or the British or the Belgians or the EU, whatever you like, in 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 in, in disregard, and they they they. And this kind of anti—they're tapping into this anti-colonial mindset, which, 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 which is working, frankly. And um, yeah.
2: And do you think just 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 to follow up on this because this is this is the big question? Um, I see a lot of talk, and I cover a lot of um, a lot of stories around the world about Russian influence. Okay, so you, know, you go down to the Balkans, and people will talk about you know. Russia has its foothold in Serbia or whatever or, or go anywhere in the world you'll 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 come across this. One thing you often hear when you put this to western officials like okay you know th- there's this panic maybe the russians are playing around but look at look at the stats look at the money like what is russia actually offering and how much of th- of this propaganda is backed by real hard um hard cash hard support i mean on the whole is the is the, um, uh, the weight of influence still um, with the West or not?
4: Well, I think, I think actually if you look at, for example, the supply of weaponry, um, I think I'm not mistaken in saying that Russia is the largest supplier of weaponry and, 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 uh, to, to sub-Saharan Africa. Um, they have uh, military agreements with, uh, I think, more than half of the countries in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, so, so they are able to provide this kind of, I don't know how I don't know how you describe it. Probably hard power, but 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 in terms of kind of the, the, how much money they have to back up African governments, it's is you, you're you're quite right. It's act, it's completely negligible compared to what um, China or, or or the West, uh, yeah, specifically the EU or um, or, or American, can muster. So 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 they, they, they are a small player, but they're a highly disruptive player. Well, thank you. Very much, uh, Will, for that. Alexandra, can I just bring
1: you in here? Um, I, th- I thought it was fascinating what Will said about how uh, Russia is seen as almost an anti-colonial power, helping African countries against their former colonial masters. I mean, that must strike you as fairly ironic, given Russian imperialism, given Russian history in in, in Eastern Europe.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think this is probably one of the you know most cynical um, lies that Russia has been putting out there. Um, You know, Russia right now likes to paint itself as this sort of um, superpower which stands against Western imperialism, Western colonialism, uh, whatever. And frankly, I find it quite shocking that, you know, a lot of people who um, sort of support these ideas and, and, you know, and repeat them, somehow are ignoring the fact that you know Russia was literally called the Russian Empire for a very large portion of its history and you know if you look um at you know how Russia grew and how um how it you know became this this huge huge country um you know it's fairly obvious that, you know, there was a lot of colonialism involved. And it, it is um, a little worrying how Russia is trying to rewrite, you know, Soviet history by um, painting itself to be, you know, this sort of anti-racist um, power in the world, um, when in reality, you know, um, the, both the Soviet Union and modern day Russia um, have huge problems, you know, um, with racism from what I can gather and from uh, what I have heard from my, you know, non-Slavic uh, Russian friends. So um, I do think it is very concerning that, you know, um, despite, you know, the fact that the Internet is sort of giving us the power to fact check all of these claims and debunk them, that obviously, you know, not enough is, is being done to combat all of this.
1: Thanks, Alexandra. Will, is there anything more from you? Anything we you didn't say, or anything that you th- think is important to mention before we move on to talking about the six month anniversary?
4: Um, yeah, I, th- I think I just yeah. So I think there's 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 one thing. I I had a I had a conversation recently with a very good friend in Kenya. And, um, and he, he was saying, I mean, he, he, it was quite interesting because I think he had been exposed to a bit of this kind of disinformation. And, he, and, and you know, or he'd been watching Russia Today, uh, you know, the, the, the Russian state television program in, 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 in Nairobi. And, and he was saying that, kind of, look, well, why doesn't, you know, the, the, NATO has clearly sort of uh, provoked the bear, as it were. And maybe Ukraine should just give up some of this territory and then we can all go back to peace. And I, and I challenged him. I said, well, wh- wh- why, wh- what would you do if, for example, Britain reinvaded? uh if britain reinvaded uh kenya and he said yeah we'd fight to the death
1: well thank you very much will for for giving us your thoughts i thought that was absolutely fascinating hopefully a window into uh a previously potentially un- untouched uh area of, of discourse and events uh to do with this invasion that we we certainly here haven't haven't touched on so thank you very much will for that um as we said today is the uh the bloody anniversary of the start of the invasion back in back in february um I was struck by something Roland said earlier on in this chat about how there's a sense in Ukraine that there is a before the war and there is an after the war. And th- th- that sort of uh, that marker um, that, that the moment of invasion before that things were one way and now they are a different way. Um, Alexandra, can I, can I ask you from your perspective is how, how do you feel about that? Is, is that true? And if, and if so, what does that mean to you? How has how has Ukraine changed?
3: Obviously, um, it has changed. Our society has changed a lot. And, you know, some people uh, I've seen a lot of Ukrainians um, write on social media that, you know, uh, essentially in back in um, 1991, we were, you know, given sort of our independence um, uh, on the platter. But now uh, is the moment in history when we are, you know, actually fighting for it. So, you know, as if we were sort of given our independence um, in advance and now we have to pay for it. Um, I don't, I wouldn't necessarily um, agree with this point of view because, you know, even before um, the 90s, Ukraine has had a very long tradition of, you know, fighting um, for its independence and resisting sort of various attempts by Russia and, you know, other actors um, of invading us and and sort of uh, trying to um, abuse our people, for lack of a better word. Um, So I don't think that's, you know, that's a very precise description. But for a lot of people, it does certainly feel that way. Um, You know, I think a couple of years back, uh, my husband and I were talking about how, you know, how we're sort of, he was sad that Ukrainians don't really uh, celebrate Independence Day, um, you know, as much as, say, Americans celebrate July the 4th. And he was saying, "Well, you know why don't we have these traditions? why don't you know our shops carry sort of Independence Day merch or something you know i'd I'd you know maybe like to have a party on that day, and you know we thought about it, and we sort of said, Well, yeah, it's sort of more like a formal holiday which isn't really it doesn't really capture the hearts and minds of you know regular Ukrainians." And this year, you know, despite the fact that, you know, most Ukrainians uh, are sadly not in a position to really, you know, go go all out and celebrate, um, you know, in, I don't know, in the middle of Kiev, because it's dangerous. um, I think a lot of us would like to do that. And I think that this year is, you know, is the year when this sort of holiday, which for a lot of people seemed like a formality, um, because, you know, a lot of people especially from my generation, um, we had sort of, you know, felt that our independence was, you know, something that, you know, we we had unconditionally and something that nobody would be trying to actively take away from us. And, you know, um, a lot of the stuff we heard from our elders about how, you know, how Ukraine has had to fight for its independence, it, it sounded like, you know, like history, like something that would probably not be repeating itself. Um, But, you know, here we are. And uh, I think a lot of people from my generation are sort of re-evaluating the price of freedom, re-evaluating the price of independence. So I definitely think that, you know, at least for our generation and, you know, maybe people a little younger, a little older than us, um, they will definitely be taking this holiday and their identity even more you know, more seriously. A lot of people have switched to talking um, Ukrainian more, I, I do notice this. And, you know, if, um, if even five or 10 years back, um, saying that you're, you know, that you were a Ukrainian uh, patriot, that, you know, for a lot of people, for a lot of younger people, it sounded, you know, a little sort of cringy and um, something that, you know, you wouldn't, you know say or or post about that on social media but as a result of the invasion even the sort of people who didn't really see you know um their ukrainian identity as something very important to them they have i feel you know reevaluated that and they are sort of you know reclaiming their own identity and the language and you know showing a lot more interest in this
1: Roland, can I bring you in at this point as well? I mean, you've been tra- you've been travelling Ukraine, reporting from it and on it for for many many years now. Um, wh- what's your reaction to what to what Alexandra is saying?
2: I mean, I, I I see what she's saying. I mean, it's it's a funny business because I think I I I've got a lot of sympathy for what um, President Zelensky said in his speech. Um, you know, I, I think there is a sense that um, a country was kind of reborn, um, and 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 it's a bit of a you know. It's, it's a bit of a hackneyed, corny phrase, I suppose, and and, <laughs> and, and there's ways you can nitpick. But, you know, genuinely, um, the way that country just came together, the way that country refused to buckle, everybody, everybody thought they would buckle. I mean, most of the Ukrainians, I know, I, I speak to them and they say, uh, yeah, well, I'm surprised we're still, you know, after three days and Kiev hadn't fallen, they were surprised. Um it's, it really is, really is a, a remarkable thing to witness. But you know what? It's not. It's, it's kind of not the first time. I mean, I remember 2014, um, being down on the um, on the Maidan in Kiev, um, witnessing that revolution, kind of building up to its crescendo from kind of you know, low key kind of protest to a bigger protest to to a full on proper bloody revolution, um, and 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 the same kind of spirit um, on display. And and amongst certain people you spoke to, there was always this sense of of a tradition of—I mean, Alexander will correct me. I'm sure if I'm, if I'm getting something wrong here, but there's something in the kind of Ukrainian national sense of self about sacrifice um, and struggle for for the nation. Sometimes it comes out in in a lot of you know in bravado, and and, and sometimes you think, God, you're 17, why are you saying this? You know, whatever. But 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 there's a root there. I mean, I remember in um, so I was in Lviv. In um, in during the Maidan, during January or February, just before it all ended, and I met this young lad who who was you know signed up and and put on a mask and was um, he hadn't actually gone to Kiev but he was like yes I'm 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 going to fight and I told my brother to stay back because you know we have a tradition he he quoted this song by a famous Soviet Russian um, Soviet Russian rock star called Viktor Soy as this fantastic fantastic song. and, and one of the lines is, uh, "I will return as soon as I can. I'll return home as soon as I can um, with my shield or on it." And he quoted that at me, and he said, "That's that's who we are." And at the, at the time, I was thinking, "You're a seventeen-year-old kid, and it's going to be really tragic if you go off with those ideas and, and get yourself hurt." But I, I really think there is an element there that that Vladimir Putin really missed um, about his invasion. He, he, he thought that this country was going to buckle. And everybody who'd been there who really knew it didn't really think that would happen. Although, speaking personally, um, you know, I, I couldn't understand why the Russians thought this war was a good idea because I just you know, we knew there was going to be a fight that the Ukrainians would fight. A lot of us kind of thought that they would fight unsuccessfully, but we knew they were going to fight. Um, and I think that has, um, you know, the country doesn't come out of nowhere. But, but but I do think this war has fundamentally changed Ukraine, um, uh, in many ways. There's the unity, there's the tragedy, there's the sacrifice. There's also, and I think this is really important, and I'd like to hear Alexandra's thoughts on this. Um, you know, the fundamental severing and destruction of ties with Russia, which, from my point of view, is a complete and utter tragedy. I mean, there's so many Russians and Ukrainians who are intermarried, so many people, you know, cousins, brothers, sisters, mothers. Um, in Kiev or Moscow or other sides of the border, people fighting in different armies after two thousand and fourteen and the annexation of Crimea, you know those relationships kind of continued um, uh, this This is completely different I mean after butcher after everything else it's a, it, it 's a fundamental fundamental change and i don 't really think even Ukrainians know where you know where like, what, what does a country that goes through this look like at the end of it? who will they be? when um, when finally um, the war ends. You, you never know, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years down the line, what an experience like this will do to a nation. Um, uh, I'm going to stop rambling now and, and and with apologies for kind of speaking very broad generalizations. I would like to hear what Alexandra has to say about that.
3: Well, I absolutely, you know, I absolutely agree. Um, we are changing as a society. And I think, um, you know, Ukrainians generally... Um, Obviously, I'm talking about stereotypes here, but Ukrainians generally aren't really known for getting along with one another. I think, you know, we have these um, jokey phrases about how, you know, if you get three Ukrainians um, in a room, you know, you'll have two presidents um, because, you know, each one, you know, has his own ideas of, of, you know, of what leadership should be like. And, you know, we argue as a society, we argue a lot. And, um, you know, I think something that a lot of Westerners don't really notice um, is that, you know, when, especially when they say things like, you know, Zelensky is forcing Ukrainians to fight or, you know, whatever, this kind of nonsense, Um, but they're missing the point that, you know, Ukrainians generally, um, they don't blindly follow their leaders. And I think, you know, 2014 and Maidan, it it sort of showed the world, it should have showed the world that we are not, you know, we don't really follow our leaders if we think they're making bad decisions. Um, And so it's, you know, it's especially fascinating for me, as someone who's, you know, who's been on Ukrainian social media uh, all of my life. And, you know, there's, there's new sort of arguments and scandals and things going on um every single day but ever since the war started i think that you know ukrainians have been a lot more you know um of course we still argue but i think our criticism is sort of much softer and we're a lot more understanding of one another i think that you know when Zelensky, um, when Zelensky won the election, a lot of the people who voted for Petro Poroshenko, they, you know, they had this sort of hypothetical uh, nightmare scenario in their heads, which they would, you know, talk about relentlessly. And they would say that, you know, well, what if, you know, Russia uh, invades? What if there's a full scale invasion? You know, uh, Zelensky, he, he, you know, he'll buckle down, he'll, he'll, won't, you know, fight. Um, and, you know, Ukrainians would go on and accuse each other of saying, you know, that in, you know, the event of an attack, you are definitely going to, you know, betray everyone and you're not going to fight because you're not a fighter. And I think up until the 24th, you know, um, Probably, you know, each family in Ukraine would, you know, glance suspiciously at their neighbors and think, well, you know, we are definitely going to fight. But those guys, those guys, you know, they're not strong enough. They're, you know, they'll be the death of us all. And, you know, to our surprise, it turns out that everyone was willing to fight. And Zelensky, you know, you know, despite the fact that, you know, there's a lot to criticize him for um and i personally don't agree with you know all of his decisions but he has you know turned out to be a much better wartime leader than a lot of people could have hoped for and so i think for me it's it's just genuinely fascinating because for the first time in my life i'm seeing ukrainians actually agreeing you know with the decisions made by their government or you know agreeing with um decisions made by know, local governments and sort of um, agreeing with one another. So it it is fascinating. And obviously, this entire experience is horrifically traumatic. And, you know, I'm sure that it will have sort of, um, there will be a price to pay for all of this. And we're all stressed out and going through terrible things right now. But also, there is a sense of unity. And I honestly don't know how long this will last, because, you know, um, we had a similar sense of unity um, during Maidan. But obviously, it didn't really last all that long. So I do think Ukrainians have this sort of weird ability to unite and to fight really, really, really bravely, um, you know, when push comes to shove, and then, you know, spend all of the peaceful time sort of arguing amongst ourselves. So I am also, you know, very curious um, as to what you know what re- what will result from all of this and you know um as i've you know i've studied sociology at university um so from that perspective i'm you know also very curious as to what affect um the war and you know the the aspect of social media and the war and you know all of these new connections all of these new sort of informal institutions that have um arisen from all of this all of these you know these people who have gotten an uh, amazing experience as volunteers, as, you know, who've had to learn so much over the past couple of months. You know, what kind of society will be born from all of this? And, you know, there's only one way to find out. So um, we'll just have to keep on, you know, keep on uh, doing our thing and and looking at what our society turns out to be like.
1: Thank you so much, Alexandra. We're starting to come to the end of our time. So I've just got two questions. Um, Roland, you... You, you mentioned just then that you thought before before the invasion, um, you know, you thought it'd be a terrible, terrible, s- stupid decision by Russia to to go through with it. What do you think um, the future for the Russian
2: state and for Russians looks like at the moment? I think it looks really grim. I mean, we, we talked earlier about the arrest of Yevgeny Roisman. I mean, not really a surprise. He was probably protected by his popularity in Yekaterinburg so far. Um, but you know, the. <laughs> For, for, for kind of as long as I was living and, in, in co- you know, covering Russia and living there, there was... It, it wasn't... You know, people would talk about, oh, is Putin a fascist? And you'd get these kind of very pat um, opinion pieces appearing in, in you know, the God bless some New York Times opinion pages or, or whatever, you know, saying like, well, if you look at Weimar Germany, etc cetera, et cetera, and you'd read it when you're in Moscow, say it's ridiculous. I mean, what are you talking about? This is not, you know... Um, there, were, there, were, there was always this kind of uneasy balance between, you know, nationalist authoritarian urges, this kind of social contract which said we're going to improve your lives, just keep out of politics and we might get a bit tough with, um, with the Chechens, we might be pretty rough with, um, you know, businessmen oligarchs who step out of line, we might, you know, and, and, and we'll leave you in no doubt as to what we will do if, if you were to try and rise up and have a democratic revolution, but we're going to leave you alone. It was, I don't know, it was, it was, it, that, that whole world is gone. Um, and and now, you know, um, and I have a, a very dear friend from St. Petersburg who, like like many people, has fled the country. Um, who you know wrote and wrote a very long essay about kind of what's happened. And and the thing that stood out for me in that was this line where she said, "You know, I, I had twenty years of life, and it just the past six months have just washed it away." Um, I think you know Russia's fundamentally changed. What happens when it comes out of it? You know, I don't know. I mean, there, there is this this idea that if the Russians lose this war, um, Vladimir Putin's regime can't survive. Um, I don't know if that's true. I don't know what defeat looks like. I don't know um, what he can spin or what he can't spin to survive. I don't know whether, if he does go, whether he will be replaced by, um, you know, people from the same kind of crazy hardline camp or, or, or somewhere else. Um, Russians have if we're going to talk again in outrageously offensive stereotypes, um, I think one of the differences that, that you can draw between Ukrainians and Russians generally is that, you know, Ukrainians never had a problem about going on the streets and, and having, you know, how many revolutions have they had in the past 30 years, right? Russians are very averse to that. Um, you know, they, 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 they really don't like revolutions. Um, that's one reason, and Vladimir Putin played on that really well. No one wants to go on the street um, and have to force a change of power, um, in that way they're, they're very conscious of how um, you can have a revolution and you know you, you can get rid of the Tsar and you know end up with Lenin um, and it's not necessarily a change for the better um, but I you know it's it doesn't look good that that Russia of the past 20 30 years has gone um, and I think you just have to look at the economic impact of this war. We're now in, a, we're now in basically a war of economic attrition between the West and Russia. Um, and the West is hoping Russia's horrible economic attrition is going to crack the Kremlin before the horrible economic attrition we're about to undergo with the, with the gas crisis um, cracks us. Um, that's what's basically going on. And I think I'm more deeply worried in the very long term. I'm more worried about what's going to happen to Russia than to Ukraine because I think... In my heart of hearts, and I may be completely wrong, I, I kind of think Ukraine is going to emerge from this war as a single whole state, um, and I, I kind of, I kind of think they're probably going to win. Um, but the fate of Russia, I think, is, I think, is really grim. I mean, I'm, I'm just very pessimistic. I don't know what's going to happen, but I don't have a good feeling about it.
1: Thank you very much for that, uh, Roland Oliphant. Um, we've come, I think, to the end of our time. Alexandra, would you like the final words then? I mean, I sort of deliberately asked Roland about the future of Russia, because I want to end with the future of Ukraine. It's something you touched upon a little bit um, in your answer previously. But I, wa- I wanted to know, on Ukrainian Independence Day, and also the sixth month anniversary of the invasion, what, what do you want the, the future for yourself uh, and for your friends and family to, to hold in, in Ukraine?
3: you know, I totally agree with everything that Sroland has said, except for, you know, um, I would like to clarify that I definitely think that Ukraine will win. It's, you know, it's not a question of probably, it's not a question of maybe. I think that, frankly, that's the only option we've got because Ukraine will either be independent um, or there won't be a a Ukraine. Uh, So, yeah, um, I, I do hope that we, you know, it's not even a question of hoping. I I know in my heart of hearts um, that we will, you know, keep fighting up until the very end and we have to win this thing because, you know, otherwise um, the alternative is just too horrifying to imagine. But I also hope that, you know, it's just a question of when, how soon that will be and, you know, how many people will have to die um, in the process and, you know, um so that that's why i definitely hope that our wonderful um allies will keep supporting us um will keep backing us because you know obviously ukraine will have to fight even you know without their involvement um but the price of that uh will obviously be horrific so so yeah um you know I definitely feel that and I think that's, you know, the, the majority of the overwhelming majority of Ukrainians are, you know, 100% sure that Ukraine will emerge victorious because, because you know, we've seen um, what happens in Mariupol and Bucha and Hostomel And, you know, we know that, you know, as as our president said, that we're not afraid of missiles. But, you know, being occupied and and tortured and not being free, that is something that horrifies us. So, you know, not a very optimistic note, too. But, um, yeah, I definitely feel that Ukraine has no choice but to emerge victorious.
1: Here on Ukraine The Latest, we give updates, analysis and our thoughts on the ongoing invasion of Ukraine. We thought it was only fair to give you a sense of how the newspaper as a whole thinks about the conflict. Here is our leader from today, the 24th of August. Six months ago, Vladimir Putin unleashed his armies upon Ukraine and upended decades of assumptions about the post-Cold War world. For weeks, UK and US intelligence had been warning that the Russian president's belligerent rhetoric should not be dismissed and that the troops massing on the border would be used in an invasion. The French and Germans were not convinced, but they were not the only ones shown up by the eventual attack. Many in the West thought that Ukraine would crumble within days. Six months later, and it's the Russians who seem to be on the back foot. This point should not be overstated. Russia controls a significant proportion of Ukrainian territory. Putin's forces have not been routed, and it is not clear that he has fundamentally shifted from his ambition to achieve total dominance of the country. Today is also Ukrainian Independence Day, and the thread that still runs through the speeches and broadcasts of Kremlin propagandists is that Ukraine is not a real country, and that the distinct national identity claimed by its people is a fiction. The strength of the Ukrainian resistance is, of course, proof otherwise. However, Ukraine's vulnerability has always been that it is reliant on NATO countries providing the sophisticated weaponry necessary to counteract Russia's military advantages, It must surely fear that a hard winter in Europe, as well as political changes in the US after the midterm elections, will erode the resolve of politicians in the West to keep up the supply, particularly if Putin continues to use energy exports as a tool of blackmail. Germany's commitment has already been shamefully weak. So-called foreign policy realists argue that Ukraine cannot possibly win, so must be persuaded to reach an accommodation with the Kremlin. But this ignores the wider significance of the conflict. Ukraine is not just fighting for its independence and freedom, but for the principle that aggressor states should not be permitted to redraw borders through force. After Putin annexed Crimea in 2014, Western leaders convinced themselves that they had done enough via sanctions to dissuade him from going further, and that, in any case, it was not in their interest to effectively fight a proxy war with Russia. They were wrong. Among the consequences of that terrible misjudgment are the horrors taking place in Ukraine today. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk slash audio. And sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And today on Twitter, Gemma Farrell.